Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, uh, Mark, thanks, Mark Ford, thanks so much for joining me on the James Altucher Show. Thank you so for inviting me. I got to tell you, like I told you before, as far as I'm concerned, you're a celebrity. I'm a big fan of yours, and I'm thrilled to have uh, you here in Delray Beach. No, I, I think people have to know what you've done. You, how many businesses have you either started or been involved in? Uh, I don't know, but certainly it's in the hundreds. In the hundreds, yeah. okay. And, and Okay, so the average, let's say, investor expects an 85% failure rate. What do you think your failure rate is in all these businesses? Um, you know what? It's hard to tell. And not that you were an investor, because you've started many of these businesses. Right. I, there are two problems in answering the question. One is that I'm 64 years old, so it, it'll all be in retrospect. And you know, in ret- retrospect, the division gets cleaned up as you go. The other is that I'm Irish. So my feeling is that 85% of them were correct, but the truth is I have no idea. I'll say this. I'm definitely not one of these people that have, that have um, uh, it failed and failed and failed and then finally made it. I never wanted to be that way. I've always been extremely uh, cautious as a, an investor of my time and my resources and my money. So um, my failure- I like how you put that, by the way. Time, resources, money. Money lasts. Time's the most valuable. Absolutely, absolutely. So because of that, and of course it took a long time to, to learn, um, I would say that it doesn't feel like uh, I've had a lot of failures. But where my failures have been is generally in areas that I knew practically nothing about. For example, investing. You know, when I, my, my career was basically the career of starting as an employee and turning into an entrepreneur and then turning into an entrepreneur. And uh, along the way, as I was making money, I was accumulating money. I didn't know what to do with it. So I would invest it according to um, whatever half-baked notion passed my way. And I did a pretty good job of losing a lot of that money. And I do talk about that. Welcome to the club. Right. So, but, but um, yeah, I would say that generally, I do think that it's possible I think the general idea that to make more money you have to take more risk is wrong. I think uh, I feel the opposite. I feel that the way to make money, um, to give yourself the highest percentage of chance of making money, is to avoid risky things and to do things that are more like sure bets. I, I guess you know, I'm the equivalent, the, the career equivalent of the parent that says, forget about being an NBA player, forget about being a rock star. Just, you know, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or maybe, maybe a plumber and just stick with that. That's my uh, view of... Uh, but you haven't... 
stuck with one thing. I mean, yes, you've started businesses, but they've been businesses in every category. And you, you say, for instance, uh, you're not good at investing, and yet you've even started businesses, obviously, in the publishing industry uh, about investing. investing right. So you've been able to take this skill set of starting businesses and apply it to, like, any area, which is opposite. You know, many people are told, uh, find your passion first and then start a business. Right. What do you think of that, like, concept? Well, you know, I thought both ways about it. I think it's possible to find your passion, turn it into a business, and have a happy life. But generally, I think if you turn your passion into a business, you're going to lose your passion. And so uh, I think that there are things that we call vocations and avocations. And to me, the avocation is the thing that you, you, you love and you're going to preserve your pristine. Because the truth is, um, whatever, whatever we're in love with in terms of a career, we're in love with it because we know practically nothing about it. When we're kids, right? Being an astronaut or being a a doctor or being a missionary, and when you actually end up being a missionary and you're, you know, you're riddled with mosquito bites and you're trying to help people and they're ignoring you and they're just asking for more money and you say to yourself, geez, I wish I would known about this when I thought it was so wonderful. So I think that for me, there's a lot, there are parts of my life that I've kept as avocations I've never wanted to make a business out of. And, uh, and then there, there and, and the other idea, Idea. You know, what I really did is I accidentally got into the business I got into. I wanted to be a writer. I started off as a writer. I was working for a small newsletter publishing company in Washington, D.C., writing about Africa. Well, I wanted to write about, like, African culture, but the job turned out to be a job writing about African commerce. And I knew so little about commerce. I literally, I mean, I had a master's degree at this time. It was called African Business and Trade. And I remember thinking, what is the difference between business and trade? In fact, what is trade? I didn't even, I literally. What's business? Right. I mean, I kind of knew, I kind of knew the concept business, but I literally didn't know what trade meant. And forget about counter trade, barter, and all the other things I had to deal with. So um, I, I ended up being in that business. And in, in three years, I figured out that how to become the publisher of that, you know, the, the top guy in that very small business. And then. Uh, is that what you mean by entrepreneur? You used that word earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, of. I would say you become either the most valuable or one of the most valuable, and you you get a compensation deal where it's tied to the the sales or profits that you create. So, <clears throat> so rather than being the sole boss and owning the business entirely, having that satisfaction, you attach yourself to a larger group that maybe has a lot more potential than you. That's the way I always felt because there's so many things I didn't know how to do, like make money and get a. I, I'd rather have you know. 10% of a big piece than 100% of a very little piece. So, I think that's an important concept that a lot of people forget. They think they're either going to be in a cubicle or they're going to be an entrepreneur. Right. And somehow an entrepreneur is some magical thing and being in a cubicle is some hateful right. thing. But there's this in, inner play, there's this middle place where, as you call it, entrepreneur, where you can figure out how your success within an organization can tie itself to your income. Right. And I have noticed, and as a devout reader of your stuff, that uh, you, you, some of your most popular, one of your most popular essays is what, uh, how to quit your job or how to yes. quit your job, and that's been a theme. But I have noticed lately that you've been mentioning that it's possible within some kind of business environment where you're not the owner to, to, have a, to become wealthy and have a good life. And I think that, that, that that's true for me. It, it's not going to, if you go to work for IBM or Merrill Lynch, it's probably not going to happen because those those companies are so big and so structured that the way to become successful there is to just, you know, do what you're told and move through the ranks. 
but um, would, if, you, if you work for a smaller company like Agora, uh, you know, when, when I had my first, after that, that Washington DC, I went down to, um, to Florida. I don't know if I should tell the story. Anyway, I, I decided I wanted to be it. a journalist. Okay, we, we have plenty of time. We can, <laughs> we can cut. So I decided I wanted to be a journalist. And so I took three, no, I decided I wanted Florida to be a journalist. Florida being the ideal place to be well, a journalist. <laughs> exactly. The, no, I was going to Florida to visit my brother-in-law who had a jet ski rental business in Key Largo. So I decided to take a journalist. I was looking for jobs as a journalist. I decided to take three interviews in Florida because I thought I would get a tax deduction. I, I was trying to be clever. So I took an interview at St. Petersburg Times, Miami Herald, and some newsletter publishing operation going on in Boca Raton that I've been getting mailers for. And I took the three um, interviews, assuming I would get none of them because in DC there were no jobs at the time, and I got all three. And to be fair, the Miami Herald has been one of the best newspapers, at least uh, in entertainment and... No, it's a good, it's a very well respected paper. And St. Petersburg Times, too, actually, is a kind of a boutique uh, 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 newspaper that has a, a good reputation. I, I think I got the job because a woman that was working for me at night was the deputy foreign editor of the Washington Post, if you can believe that or not. Apparently, they didn't pay their deputy foreign editors, not to say was moonlighting for me. And, uh, and I would edit her stuff. And she thought, you know, it's so much easier to edit than write, as I'm sure you know. I would criticize something she said. And so she thought I was brilliant and told these two editors. I, I interviewed with the editor-in-chief, Andrew Barnes and whoever else was in Miami. So basically, I had these jobs. So suddenly, I found myself in, uh, on the shores of Key Largo on a, in the boat uh, jet ski rental place sitting down, having three job offers, and the guy next to me was uh, his whole, he, you remember um, Sean Penn in uh, Fast Times? Yeah, sure. Okay. So that basically was him sitting next to me. And his job in life was to fill jet skis with gas. And that was really the only thing he was qualified to do. And smoke doobies nonstop. And so I decided, I, I couldn't decide, you know, and, but it was really two choices. It was I saw the Pulitzer Prize over there, and I saw a big bag of money in Boca Raton. <clears throat> so I decided I would explain this all to this kid and let him decide. You know, it could have been a coin More toss. Strategy. Well, it could have been a coin toss, but right. I, I knew I knew enough about my life so far to know that I I had no idea, you know, what was the right decision. So uh, I told him the whole story, and he just uh, he just looked at me and exhaled and said, "Boca, oh Boca." <laughs> So that was the decision, and really, I I took the job, and uh, this guy turned out to be a amazing entrepreneur, uh, uh, very uh, aggressive, uh, a, a marketing genius, um, and he was publishing newsletters on like robotics, agribusiness. I didn't know anything about that. Who was he publishing to? Was it like to other businesses or to? It was business to business, but. Um, as it turned out, it wasn't really a publishing company because his interest was in uh, raising the money to start a publishing company through tax shelters, which existed at the time for those kind of publications. And he did have one editor there from Gore Hill that was a real editor, but I don't think the business would have ever really made any money until a year later after I took a, a Dale Carnegie course and uh, I realized that my big problem in life was that I had I had too many goals, you know. One 
common problem is people don't have goals and then they say you don't write them down, you don't do this, you don't do that, which I think is true for many people. But I had a lot of goals and I was trying to follow them all at the same time just as I am still am in a way. And I remember I, I, we came to that chapter and it said if you have this problem, you're going to have trouble with this exercise. And the exercise was to eliminate the, write down ten, your top ten, narrow it to three, and then go in, you know, I, the Dale Carnegie program that I took was 14 weeks and every week you would read a chapter and then you go in and you would stand in front of these, uh, this audience and you would tell them what you're going to do. You make a little speech and if they like it, you got a pencil. I don't know if you ever experienced that. Yeah. It sounds pretty corny, but this one only changed my life. I, I got down to three, teacher, writer, and millionaire, you know, rich guy. And uh, I could not decide. I was like frantic. I was sweating, driving there. My heart was pounding. Because I felt that if I chose one, somehow it, it must have subconsciously I knew that it would change me, and I felt like I was giving up the others. And so, as I was walking up to the podium, I, I had this thought: Why don't you just make the money? Because if it turns out not to be what you think it is, then you just give it away, or you know, what the hell? You know, you can always do the other thing. So that's what I did. I said I was going to do that, and that changed me. I mean, overnight it changed me. Everything got. Did clear. you have to pick one? I had to pick one. Okay, so you, and, had, so you, and, had, to, you had to write down 10, you had to narrow it down to three, and then that night you had to pick one. And for the rest of the course, which was another 12 weeks or so, 11 weeks, you had to focus on nothing but that in terms of your goals, both when you went in and talked about things and when you were doing your daily work. So, so you had to kind of, for the next 12 weeks or whatever, you had to kind of come up with ideas that would move you forward to being a millionaire? Exactly. So like, what was the first thing that you thought needed, you needed to move forward? Good question. So I get back in the next day and I look on my desk and my desk had this huge pile of paper. You know, back then everything was paper, you know. And I've been writing this long book, basically our own style manual for the publishing company. You know, a style manual, and I know you know, but for the audience is like, how do you punctuate things? What's acceptable usage? And very, you know, stuff that's very interesting to an English major, but everybody else is very arcane. And I realized I've been spending like half of my time writing this style manual. Meanwhile, there's like, you know, there's a UPI style manual, there's Chicago style, the New York Times style manual. There's all these other style manuals that couldn't possibly be, that my style manual couldn't possibly equal. And that's what I was actually spending a portion of my time doing. So I just took the thing, I had been three months and I threw it in the garbage. I right, because it wasn't moving you forward towards that goal. Oh, yeah. I, I knew right away that the only way I was going to make money was to, I knew that the guy I was working for was all about making money. And so I thought, I got to just start doing stuff that actually helps us create more sales. You know, it reminds me, though, <clears throat> in, a, in some sense, and I don't know if you're going to make this go public or not, but I just read Persuasion by you. Mm -hmm. And that, in a sense, is a style manual. But it's a style manual, and, and it actually even gets down to punctuation. But... It's a style manual that's about selling. It's about making money. So, and, and by the way, you used examples from Steinbeck, from literary examples. So it's not that different. Everybody needs to express their ideas, whether mm -hmm. you're a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer or a, a selling something, an advertiser. Mm -hmm. So it's the same type of, of style manual. Absolutely. And of course, persuasion is about much more than money. It's about, it's about everything in life. Uh, the, if you have the ability to be persuasive, and we all do to some extent, uh, but the, you can get more things done, including just uh, just about an hour and a half ago, I was at this little 
we call it the, my wife calls it the swamp house, but it's actually a very cute little cottage I'm building on a lake about 20 minutes from here in a pond. I was, uh, I had to use my persuasive powers to convince her and the decorator not to completely redo a closet, spend $10,000 completely redoing a closet that we would only see once a year. And I'm happy to report I was successful. And what, what, was, your, what was the persuasion technique used? <laughs> we won't tell her. I well, promise. it, <laughs> she, and, and, I, and I promise she won't, it, only if one of her friends sees it will she find out because she doesn't read my books and she doesn't come to my uh, lectures or whatever. So uh, it, 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 well, of course, it started with um, flattery, you know, by saying that I thought that the original idea was very good. But I, I thought, I also said that I know that what you like is, you know, ample room for the, the, the you know, whatever, brooms and those, anyway. So I, I just, I, bit by bit, I appealed to her what I thought that she really wanted and uh, tried to explain how uh, it could be done very quickly and efficiently without necessarily ripping everything out and starting all over again. She was cooperative, so I'm not saying it wasn't my um, the most no, masterful. No, no, but, uh, but I like the right. technique. So kind of you, you say yes, right, right, and then you figure out how you list the items. This is what you've said before, what you've invested in before right. that that you've wanted, right. and here's how we right. achieve this without exactly. minimal. With minimal in other words, you do exactly opposite what what you feel like doing as a normal spouse, right? And what you normally feel like doing, at least if you've been married for 42 years, is saying, you always do this, you always insist, and, blah, blah, blah. and then, of course, you're going to go nowhere. But this was important. I wanted that closet to be... Uh... Anyway, so uh, I don't, where were we? Well, okay, so you're at Boca Raton. You're, you're, oh, right, right. This guy was very good. So almost the next day, months. I started. I realized that my job, as I was the editorial director of this, and there were like, 15 or 20 newsletters already. And I realized my job was to try to help sell newsletters. And so I started looking at the newsletters entirely differently, not how, um, how respectable they are from a literary point of view or, or even a technical point of view, but um, were they answering questions that were solving problems for uh, people in the industry? And uh, it was like, you know, it was like I, I took the glasses, you know, the shades off and suddenly it, the answers were so obvious. What needed to be done was so obvious after that. And virtually in all areas, if I had a conflict with an employee, um, uh, I had a conflict with, uh, with um, the woman that was actually uh, the vice president of the business, um, I, I, I didn't have the same reactions. I knew that she was going to be gone eventually because she, she was completely now on the other side. When I came in, I was on her side. Let's, let's build products. This is a corporate mentality. Let's build products we can be proud of as employees and which we can show to our friends and maybe win industry awards for. And who cares what it costs? You know? and, and two, let's try to make more money so that my boss one day will make me a partner. And uh, so I knew that she was going to go. And when she started, I had lunch like two or three days later with somebody else where, she had, where we had this luncheon meeting and she was telling me about all the things that were wrong with my boss, you know, our boss. And I knew it was to enlist me and to be part of their little clique. And I just knew that was, that was the wrong way to move. So I just said, listen, I feel uncomfortable about this conversation. I've got to tell you right now, I'm hired. Joel hired me. I'm his guy. And I'm sticking with him. And from that day forward, the next day, at least once a week, I was called in in front of Joel by her to try to get me fired. <clears throat> and uh, 
And she didn't know anything about really editing, so her husband, who worked for us as a freelance editor, would give her ammunition, and she would come in, and she would kind of repeat it as best she could, and then I would very calmly just explain what I was doing, which was making the newsletter more sellable, and why I didn't think these, why I wasn't paying attention to them. So if you always brought it back to, this is going to increase more sales, which I'm assuming means this is going to create more value for our customers, that beats editorial. Back then, I got to be honest with you, I didn't, um, I didn't have that uh, elevated view. My view was very selfish and it was very personal. I knew that Joel wanted to make a lot of money, and that that's what he was in business for. And everything I did was about pleasing Joel's basic desire to make money. And that was good, but it was bad. I learned an enormous amount about marketing and about building businesses. He was real a business genius. I, I got to tell you, a business genius. But he was also, um, you know, he wasn't the most. Uh, let's just say that his he had a his moral compass uh, view of life was like you take care of your family like gold, and the people around you like silver. I was in that category. Then there's what's outside of gold. Then there's bronze, and, bronze, and then maybe lead or dirt. And uh, you know, customers are in the dirt area. So, uh, and this was actually quite common in the uh, direct marketing industry because back then you never saw your customers. You never saw them, and. They but you had renewals, though. I mean, you still no, we didn't have renewals. You had to produce. Yes, you're right. We had to produce better products that would get renewals. But I'm thinking of other things in terms of, um, you know, uh, refund policies. We were tough on refunds, and we didn't need to be. I learned later on we didn't need to be. But anyway, the truth was, my goal was to please Joel, and my persuasion techniques back then were all about um, persuading the people in the in the business to do things that would increase sales. Later on, it was really, um, I almost thought that business was that way, and I think a lot of people do, that business is, is, has to be this, this me-first kind of activity. But it wasn't really, and of course, I felt terrible about when I thought I was doing the wrong thing, you know? But I, What's I was, an example where you thought you were doing the wrong thing? Well... But it was still making money. Some of our advertising was, um, uh, like, we actually got in trouble for it, uh, we, we, we were selling cubic zirconium diamonds. After we got out of the publish, we, we sold the publishing business in 87 and we got into the merchandise business, which he already had some familiarity with. And so, um, uh, well, I don't know if this totally is- Totally different business. Totally different business, same principles. He, Joel said to me once, he goes, before this happened, he goes, Mark, you've got to decide if we're fish or fowl. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, are we, I, are we publishers or are we marketers? I don't know. You tell me. I, I kind of guess we're marketers. I go, okay. <laughs> what does that mean? He goes, we're getting rid of all these newsletters because the stock market's about to crash. This was right prior to 1987. We're going back into the merchandise business. I go, okay, let's do it. I was still about pleasing Joel. And so. How would he know where to buy the cubic zirconium cheap, where to sell it? Like, how do you figure that out from scratch? I. This, this guy was, all I can tell you is we had these, uh, I think they were Hasidic Jews that would come into our office in Boca Raton and be selling us stuff that was made in China. Now, this was back in the, uh, this was back in 87. Yeah. And this is long before this became a, a huge, China became a huge supplier of stuff. But we were buying, you know, we were buying watches for $1.50 before everybody was selling $10 watches. We were, bu we were buying everything. We were buying televisions for $16, you know, and... Uh, so we, we became one of the largest uh, direct sellers of watches, perfume, knockoff perfumes, um, 
jewelry, cosmetic jewelry, you name brand, it. Like fake brand? Not, not fake brand, but uh, because, you know, you couldn't do that without mm. getting into trouble. But things that resembled the brand that had similar titles, like instead of, uh, give me a brand, like instead of uh, Poison, we would call it, I can't even think of it, but instead, give me another brand. Uh, Louis Vuitton? Louis Vuitton, we would call it like uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre, Pierre Bouton or something <laughs> like that. So uh, anyway, so those are the kind of things I wasn't particularly proud of. Well, but, but, um, but we all, I mean, I think we, we try to, one thing, we had a deal. Were you making money at this point in the sense that Yeah, we were making money. But you personally, was your income tied yes, to the sales yeah. of the company? Yeah, I was making money, I think within a year, or a year and a half of my, that Dale Carnegie moment, I was a millionaire. I got rich pretty quick because um, so you were about thirty-four years old at this point. Yeah. I I uh, after I started fixing the newsletters, we we decided to go into the investment newsletter area. He was in the investment business before he was. Uh, he had a seat on the New York Stock Exchange at that time. He was the youngest person to have a seat, and he, he was. Uh, anyway, we went into the newsletter publishing business, and. Um, Forgot what I was even talking about. Uh, you were you, you had a seat on the exchange. You were a millionaire at thirty-four. Oh right, right. So so we were we were publishing investment newsletters, and so now I was trying to learn about it. This business was just beginning back then. Now and this was direct to consumer. Direct to consumer, publishing newsletters for individuals, how to invest better. Uh, Joel happened to be an expert in penny stocks, and I knew nothing about stocks at the time. Penny stocks are stocks that usually go nowhere. But, um, particularly based in Boca Raton. Particularly, here. in <laughs> fact, they actually did. Boca Raton's like famous. As I know. Like, and Las Vegas and is like penny stock. Land. There was a New York Times article that actually drew a circle around his uh, where he lived at one time as the center of uh, uh, this activity. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm grateful. He was a, a tremendous mentor of mine, and, and, he, and he treated me like uh, gold and silver. But. Um, but anyway, we were we were aggressive marketers of, of newsletters, all kinds of newsletters, but including those kind of newsletters. And would you um, test, like, would you put an ad in this paper, an ad in this paper, and see what sold? No, we, we sold mostly through direct mail, which was uh, sending actual letters, sales letters to people in the mail, people who were uh, buying other investment newsletters. You would buy those lists. You would buy the list, rent the lists, right? You would rent the list, and you would send out a, you know. A, a letter, it would cost you 35 cents, 40 cents per piece in the mail. You send out 100,000, spend $40,000, and hope you got back $45,000, and then you could mm -hmm. stay in business. So the whole direct response publishing industry began primarily through news investment newsletters. And um, anyway, um, so I invented, uh, I was looking at them, and none of them interest me. I had no interest in stocks or bonds. But I, I was looking at what was working, and I went to some conferences and met some customers. And most of our customers were, were people that were in their 60s or 70s or older. And these guys were basically my parents' age. And they had been, into world, uh, been through World War II. They had, their parents had been through the Depression. And they had a very particular view of the world. And I realized that these newsletters were not addressing that. So I created a, an investment service that was I wrote a package for something that was brand new that wasn't just a newsletter, it was a club. And that became the Oxford Club, which is still exists today and still a very successful financial service right now. And, but that, uh, I went into Joel and I said, uh, 
So I've, I've written this thing, I've invented the product, I've got the product, I've got the promotion, I've got everything. Well, it, it took me three or four months to do it. So I just wanted a piece of the action. He said, uh, he looked at it and he, he, he told me to wait and he came back the next day, he said, I'm gonna give you a piece. And uh, I thought he was gonna give me 50% or something. And he said he was gonna give me 10%. I said, great, he goes, he goes, but I like your thing. I think it's worth at least, I don't know what he said, $100,000. I said, oh, thank you. And he goes, okay, so uh, give me my check. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you said you wanted 10%. I go, yeah, he goes, well, you gotta pay me $10,000. You only haven't even mailed it. He goes, hey, you agreed it was worth 100,000. So that was a lesson in itself. So. He, he, then I, that's an, actually that's an interesting negotiating technique where you establish the formula in advance without filling yeah. in the blanks. Everyone agrees to the formula, and then oh, the negotiation's over before we even discuss numbers. He was a master negotiator, and if we had time, I would tell you the greatest negotiating story ever told. We can do this afterwards uh, when we have. Dinner. No, just tell me now. It's okay. Good. The so greatest negotiating ever, story ever told, I have to have on my podcast. And this will be, this will be. Okay, so Joel is this great negotiator, and he's such a great negotiator that he got into a little bit of trouble with people in the industry because they would make deals with him, and they, were, they would leave happy, and then three or four months later, they would feel that deals were unfair, and they would complain. Now, I don't believe in making deals like that anymore because that because doesn't help when you do stuff like that. And I saw it with Joel. If you make a deal with somebody, they're happy, and then three months later, they're mad. You have a bad business relationship, and that's not good. But Joel was, you know, Joel was just very skillful in the, uh, you know, winning through intimidation or the, true, uh, uh, um, the, the ideas that say take care of yourself first and the other person second. I completely think that's the wrong way to negotiate. But, but uh, Joel was very good. And so Joel calls me in one day. We had a tax problem. We had made tons of money and all these different corporations and we hadn't structured them right. And we were gonna pay like, like $10 million in taxes that we shouldn't really have been paying. We should have been paying three million. And so he, we had his father-in-law, Sid, uh, settle the problem with the IRS agent. And the guy, he worked hard. He took the guy out golfing. He did everything and it was settled correctly. So Sid basically, from his point of view, he saved us seven million dollars. So Joel calls me in the office. Did you see uh, Sid sent us his bill? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, what did you think? I go, well, you know, it was like for eighty-five grand or something. I said, um, I said, it wasn't what we agreed to. You know, it was more than twice what we agreed to. But I think we got a great deal. And he goes, yeah, you're right. But still, it wasn't what we agreed to. And I go. Uh, yeah, well, what are you getting at? He goes, I think we have to bring him in and talk to him about it. Come on, this is crazy. You know, we're making tons of money, and this is your father-in-law. He's rich. You're rich. This, the, the, the only difference this makes to any of us is me, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to negotiate. He goes, you're right, you're right. Go back. Next morning, he calls me and goes, I can't do it. We have to negotiate. I said, all right, you know, if you want. He goes, all right, it's going to be you, me, and Phil. By that time, his son was working going to negotiate with him. We've got to plan it out. And I go, plan it out. You're the greatest negotiator. I like ever. how you brought in Phil, who's the actual blood relative of Sid. Exactly. Joel wasn't the blood relative, but we bring in Phil, who's blood. Yeah, no, I haven't realized until this point, but you're right. And so now I'm, I'm completely mortified because this is the worst expression of all the bad things that could go wrong that did. And so he, we actually practice on negotiating. So... Make a long story short. Oh, by the way, I want to interrupt you again. I'm sorry no, to no, keep no. interrupting. 
But the fact that you practice negotiating, I don't think people realize how much of business is actually, it's like 95% is talking about all the interactions you're going to have. There's 5% of business that happens, and then 95% is all you and all your partners talking about how that 5% is going to play exactly. out. Exactly. And you know, they, that is one of the things Joel taught, taught me. As smart as he was, and I never worked with a smarter guy, and he had this amazing retentive mind, he practiced everything. And if he was going to have a meeting with somebody, he actually boned up for it. Where, where I would just go in and wing it, he would bone up for it. And that's one of the things I got from him. But so we practiced, and I had my role as the kind of outsider, and Joel had his role, and then poor Phil as the grandson had his role. And so the day comes, Joel actually sets up. Now, I'd be making, maybe making this up because I am Irish, but I think he actually lowered the seat where Sid was going to sit. And then we're sitting around him in this big power office. And Sid, I have to do the standing up. Sid comes walking in after the golf. Now realize, Sid is like 75 years old at the time. And he's got these little golf shorts. He's got these skinny, bony legs. And he comes walking in like this. Hey, boys, what's going on? And we were like, sit down, Sid. And he goes, oh. And so he sits down like this. And uh, he's sitting in the chair like a little old guy. And we start laying into him. And I am dying. I'm so embarrassed, you know. And we're just doing it, and he's getting wider and wider. And I'm thinking, you're going to kill. I'm, he's actually going to die, and I'm going to be part of this, and I'm going to have killed an old man. How how greedy can you get? What is wrong with us, you know? And, and was his primary argument, this is not what we agreed to? Was that everything? I guess that. Well, I, I don't even remember. I couldn't. I couldn't. Like Phil doesn't even need to do talking. It's just the blood relative in the room. Believe me, I, I was so I couldn't think at uh, that point. I have no memory of that. It was like a car accident for me. I can only tell you what we planned to do. Then it started, and then I do remember the end of it. I'm watching Sid, and he, he looks like he's about to die. He's getting wider and wider, and then he goes, he goes. We finally stop, and he goes, "So, boys, is that it?" And we say, "Yeah." And he goes, "Well, uh, I only have one question for you." I said, "What is that?" He goes, "Did you think that was the entire bill?" <laughs> I'm not kidding. We spent another hour negotiating, and we settled for $180,000. Oh, my God. So Sid turned the we table. We doubled <laughs> with that one question. Did you think that was the entire bill? Because Sid's argument is, I should get a percentage of the $7 million I just saved you. So, so it's a matter of I never, arguing over the formula. I never know to this date whether Sid, I think that was the entire bill. But Sid was such a master negotiator, he knew with, he knew with one question, he could completely knock Joel's legs out. And, and we did. We ended up paying twice what he, what he wanted. Huh. So, so, he, so he changed the conversation. He changed it from mm -hmm. the uh, what we agreed to, right. to to what it was worth. What the balance, seven right. million? The, right. It's, it's, it's more right. based on the seven million right. rather than what we agreed to. Right. So uh, changing the conversation is a valuable skill. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But you know, we're talking about we because there's a, there, and you refer to this in persuasion. It's this is the important emotional content. How would you? feel without that $7 million. That's what he changed the conversation right, to. Right, exactly. So it's not whether, um, it, it became, um, hey, are you going to live up to what you agreed to, to how would you feel without $7 million? Right, and exactly. that was emotionally stronger. Right, exactly. So, yeah, you know, my whole, uh, we don't have to stay too long on uh, negotiating, but um, Bill gave me a whole different perspective in negotiating, which I admire greatly. And I do think to be a good negotiator, you have to have some of the skills that Joel has and but I would say that I would rather have 60% of what Bill does. And this is Bill's technique. And so this is Bill Bonner. Bill Bonner, right. Publishing. This is Bill's technique. No planning whatsoever. Just 
discussion beforehand about what the value of this might be to us, what it might not be. So Bill, Bill comes in with a, a good assessment of what he thinks the value is. So he'll let you present your thing and then you'll, you'll say, so he'll say, oh, go, uh, James, uh, what do you think is fair? And then you'll tell him and then he'll, he'll go, he'll, he'll, he only says one of two things. He goes, well, that seems fair to me. Or he'll go, oh, I couldn't afford that. And if he says, I couldn't afford that, not only will you not complete that deal, you'll never do business with him again. Huh. Because what Bill's doing is much smarter. What Bill's doing is he's looking for a long-term relationship. Because he understands that the way businesses work is not by, uh, well, I, I'm not talking about every business relationship like, like um, necessarily getting your muffler fixed. But uh, in terms of building businesses for the long term, what Bill understands is that uh, businesses are built on leveraging good relationships where people help each other. And you can find that out from the first negotiation. You know, fairness isn't a, isn't a dot. Fairness is a range. You know, what's, you, you can't, it's silly to say that uh, there's a particular dollar amount that a per business is worth and it's not worth a dollar more or a dollar less. So it's some kind of range. And um, after seeing Bill do this a number of times, I, I started to understand that. And, I, and what I'm looking for in a business relationship in terms of evaluating the business is does this person's perception of my contribution and his contribution in terms of its dollar value fall in a range that's compatible with each other? You know, if, if this is the range, he might be up here and I might be up here, but there's plenty of overlap. But if they're, if they're disparate, then I can't do business with them. We could make a deal, but we're never going to have a relationship because the deal will just won't be satisfactory to each of us. And so the other thing that I do, and uh, this may be contrary to what other people do, is if I make a deal with somebody and then three months later I can see that, and I think you've actually mentioned this in some of the stuff you said, I see that the good deal is not good for him, I change the deal. I make it good for him because I want the deal to be good for him. If I make a relationship and it's not good for me and he won't want to change, then I made it, I, I made, I, I got in bed with the wrong person. And so I'll just, I, what, that's happened in my, in, my, in my experience. And I just, I'm fine. I do my thing. And then I stop doing business with you. And I have business relationships where there are people that I was kind of a partner relationship and I felt like they didn't handle it right. And I was happy. I still, I still have lunch with them. Their business is going down. And uh, I hope I don't have any, what's a good German word for that? Pleasure in other people's uh, schadenfreude. Uh, schadenfreude. I hope, that, but it does pop up a little bit. You know, I just smile at them. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. But Bill's technique's fascinating because I, what I like about that technique is he already has in mind a sense of the value that he wants to negotiate. Right. But instead of just saying, I think it's worth X, he asks for advice. What do you think it's worth? And so he's getting several things out of that. First off, they might say something slightly less, but still within that range of acceptability, right. in right. which case he's kind of quote unquote winning the negotiation. Right. But he's also using it as a test. Am I going to be on the phone six months later arguing with right, this guy? Exactly. And right. uh, it's incredibly useful. Yeah. I, 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 that's valuable. And, and, it's, and it saves a lot of stress, too. Yeah. You know, I don't want to make this all about people would be wondering, why did you interview him? Why didn't you interview Bill? Which you certainly can. But, uh, no, no, but you've got like uh, this wealth of experience from all these different people, and obviously you've built hundreds of businesses yeah. off of it. So I want to, I want to hear how you've aggregated that wisdom from all these people. Well, Bill and Joel, for me, are two people I think about a lot because they're like, they're not rich dad, poor dad, but they're like, you know, hyper evil dad, good dad. Well, no, don't say it. He wasn't evil <laughs> right, at I'm all. Not gonna, I'm was, not going to say evil dad. He was a wonderful guy in many ways, but he was, let's say, hyper. Uh, 
aggressive business type of dad. Well, okay, you called it in one of your books, hoarder versus sharer. That uh, you did identify, and I know you were thinking that way. Well, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so, so I've learned a lot from both of them, but I think in terms of living a, good, uh, a stressless, much stress-free life, uh, Bill is, uh, he's, he's a genius at that. And, uh, and his negotiating uh, strategy, Bill also is a person that uh, he almost never criticizes you. And so the genius of that, when you don't criticize people, and I'm not that way, I mean, I'm more from the other side, but um, is that you attract people that are very strong people. It's hard to hold on to great employees if you're very domineering. You can do it, but it, it's work. Uh, but um, Bill, uh, because Bill has this, I call it, uh, it's business equivalent of negative capability, he allows you to be your full self in his presence. Uh, that. Um, he can see your full self, which is a big plus, you know, your, your, your strong points and your weak points, because he lets you act out. And so he's, he's, not, he, he, he's not battling you, you know, uh, as a, he doesn't feel the need to battle you. So he sees your strengths and weaknesses, he makes comments, and uh, kind of lets you do your thing. So I, I, as I said, I, I, there were, you know, one is kind of a hard way and the other is a soft way. One's a, a tense way and the other's a relaxed way. And I think for me, especially as you get older, I want my life to be, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 percent relaxed, not, you know, when you get older, you don't know this yet, you're still a young guy, but you do get, when you're about 60, you have a choice. There are two clear roads. You can become one of these, the typical road, the big road is you're going to become old and crotchety and you're not going to want to do anything, you're not going to want to leave, you're not going to want to travel, you're not going to want to do anything out of the ordinary. And the other one is you can become one of these really cool old people that's like, you know, relaxed and they like people and everybody loves them. So I'm trying to go in that direction. So, so uh, we've been in Agora a couple of times. They sell like $350 million worth of newsletters, information products, other products. And I do think the average, let's say, 150 million people who are sitting in cubicles right now would benefit from knowing, and you talk about this a lot in your books, particularly uh, Ready, Fire, Aim, would benefit from learning, how can I, A, come up with the idea that will get me out of my cubicle, and B, how do I start marketing this? It's, it's, I forget if you said it or someone else said it, but school kind of teaches you to get a job, but no one teaches you to get seven multiple sources of income. Right. And so how can I, from your experience with all these different businesses, how can I start from step one I'm in the cubicle and I'm scared. Okay. I think my I think I don't like my boss, right. or he's going to fire me, or she's right. going to fire me. I have kids to raise right. and I have alimony to pay. I think in my mind is telling me I'm stuck. Okay. What's the first step? Okay. Uh, there are two things you could do simultaneously that don't compete with each other. One is you have to figure out how to become the most valuable employee you possibly can be, and really the most valuable employee in your, the environment of your business, whatever that is, your department, your division, however far you, you feel you can rank. And, and you've got to figure out what that means. I'll get back to that in a second. The other thing is you have to decide whether your business is a business where an entrepreneur can thrive. Uh, many businesses are not. You know, I, I have to say that uh, this becoming an entrepreneur would not work, as I said, if you're working in a very corporate environment. If, you're, if your business is political, it won't work. A political business is one where position and power are more important than uh, creativity and uh, productivity and profit. Uh, profit, although you know, 
when I was younger, I wouldn't have recognized it, is the purifying element of business. Uh, when you have profit, when everybody's thinking about making profit, then a politics, uh, who, you know, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, takes second seat to coming up with good ideas and moving the business forward. So you have to be in that environment. And if you're not in that environment, I think you have to move. You do have to quit your job. And generally speaking, if you, if you go into, you know, if, if we're young people, I always say, go work for a small business that's growing. You know, when you're, when you're working for a small, you know, they say uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, and we all have different capacities in our own internal um, boat, you know, of our boats of our brains or emotional intelligence have different sizes. But if you're, if you're in, a, in a company that itself is going quickly, your chances of moving up the ladder are much, much greater, and your chances of getting uh, cross-departmental experience are much, much greater. So I do think it's very important to figure out whether your business is a business that uh, can uh, that would accept you if you were an entrepreneur that welcomes and lets people move up as fast as they, you know, that's one of the things about Agora. Agora always, if somebody, you know, in the old days, if somebody said, hey, listen, I want to I want to start a whole new division, we would, we would go, okay, you know, go ahead, do it, take a chair. I mean, practic it was practically like that, you know, and uh, uh, maybe that's not so unusual today when I think about, when I read about how some of these California-type businesses work, but... Uh, but it's definitely like, like again, I, I hate. I always use Procter and Gamble as like the classic example. That usually doesn't occur in Procter and Gamble. Right, right. So, so that no, it, no offense to Procter right, and Gamble. Right, no offense. I use but, them in every single right. podcast. And, and look, their system, and you know what? It may even be that that's the only way a business like that can be, because one of the things I've discovered is my businesses have gotten bigger from one million to ten million to hundred million to Gore's now over five hundred million. Is that a lot of the things that you hate in a small business happen inevitably? They happen for a real reason. There's a reason why big businesses are bureaucratic. And it's not because evil people came in and decided to make them. It's just like governments. There's a reason why governments are so horrible in so many ways. It's just, it comes from a natural uh, process of trying to solve problems with multiple people. But putting that whole issue aside, if you are working for Procter & Gamble, however, they're not going to change. So you have to change. You've got to move and go into a small, fast-growing business. But in the meantime, while you're waiting to get that better job, you should try to become the best employee you can. And by that, it means you have to, and I do talk about this in some of my books, you have to recognize that every business has uh, basically three, three pieces. They have the sales and marketing side, they have the product production side, and then they have the management stuff, everything else that's done. The management stuff that's done is not where you're going to become a partner in your business. You know? uh, it, it's very tough to do that. Uh, there's one position basically in that whole structure, and that's for somebody that really knows how to manage profits. If the business is structured, there are certain types of businesses where managing profits is very important. But otherwise, it's generally in the sales and marketing area, or if there's some limited number of positions in the product production area where you can get a piece of the pie. That first uh, uh, newsletter I, I invented was I, I produced the product, and I also wrote the sales uh, the sales program. So I was kind of in both sides. So. What you need to do is understand how does that work in your business? How does your business make money? You know, what, how does the marketing work? How does the sales force work? How do products get produced and reinvented and, and reproduced? And, and find out where you are. Are you in that mechanism? Are you part of that? And if you're not, can you shift over? Can you start volunteering to, to at least learn about those things? So, you know, it is a pretty strategic, I mean, I can't, I'm not telling people just try to be the best person you can be. That's not going to work. And even being the best part of, this is a big topic, but part of this process is not just 
being the innovator in the business or being the great marketing guy, but you have to pr promote yourself. You do have to promote yourself within the business because if your business is at all big, there are plenty of people who want to take what you're doing, take credit for it, and, uh, and put you in the closet. So you have to know how to do that too. So it's interesting. So I, my only real experience with like big corporate America, I worked for HBO. And you're right, there was a production side, they made TV shows. There was a sales and marketing side, how do we get more customers for HBO? And then there was the whole kind of uh, accounting slash IT side, which mm -hmm. is sort of the management right, side. Right. And uh, I, of course, was on the management slash IT right. side. So we were in another building. Nobody right. talked to us. It was totally worthless. Right. And the way I would try to succeed at HBO was moving myself into the production right. side where I was obsessed. So you had the right instincts. My son, uh, my oldest son, Liam, got into kind of like he's on the IT side of uh, a, a company that does colorization for movies. They're the biggest company in America or the world that does that. And he went in into the IT side. He started out as a an engineer. And I said, you know, the, you know, I was trying to say, I, I, I just want you to know that the problem with being in that part of the business is that the person that's really making the ultimate decisions about who makes money in business has, is looking at all their employees in terms of a ledger. On this side of the ledger are the expenses, and on this side are the production people. And these are the people that can make me money, and these are the people I need. And when you're an engineer, an IT guy, an accounting guy, even a legal guy, especially in this world, you're on the expense side. No matter what. Yeah, I, I may there. need them, but you're a cost, and I want to reduce that cost, and I want to increase this. So how do I do that? By giving these people more incentives, including financial incentives, and by just holding these people down, because they're presumably they're replace, you know, they're replaceable. And so He's doing the same thing, by the way. He's moving into production right now because in that industry, like every other industry, when he got into it, he, believe it or not, 10 years ago, this is something I'm sure our listeners are not interested in, but the, I think you might be. The, the, in, in the movie business, the um, colorization, uh, the movie business was still basically analog. The whole movie business 10 years ago was 80% analog, and all the colorization stuff was done on film. And... It's only been in the last 10 years it, 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 it went into digital. But now, in the last five years, the digital stuff that he was paying a million dollars for, it, he can pay $5,000 for it. So it happened so quickly. That's interesting. It's not, it has a Moore's Law kind of effect. Right, exactly. So uh, he, he's a smart kid, and he, he can see the writing on the wall. You know, he can, he can hire people right out of college to do the, the, the work that he was spending all night. By the way, he almost deleted. Um, the first thing he did was he almost deleted. This is a lesson for our young people. He called me up and he said, I'm in big trouble. This is about after about a month. He, 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 it's a credit to you that he called his dad yeah. when he was in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm in big trouble. What did you do? He was working on, I think, Mission Impossible. Okay? Five, the next one coming up? No, no, this is the first one. Uh -huh. Or something like that. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But it was a giant movie like that. And I said, what happened? He goes, well, you know how he kind of liked to tinker with things? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, I deleted the movie. I go, what do you mean you deleted the movie? He goes, I deleted the whole movie. It's gone. I go, you mean it's like a $150 million movie you just deleted? And he goes, yes. I go, well, obviously it can't be entirely deleted. And he goes, no, no, I mean it can be recovered. But it's, it can't be recovered like until like uh, I do all these things that will happen uh, by the time everybody there's a meeting tomorrow and all, uh, whatever his name is is coming in there. And uh, they're going to know, right, they're going to know what happened. Mm -hmm. It was a producer. Uh, producer. Um, so I'm like, oh, 
yeah. I go, so they're going to come in, all right? This, I, go, I said, I know this much. I don't know anything about IT, but I know this much about business, that you're, the boss, the guy that's going to have to deal with this, doesn't know anything about IT either. And he also knows he's probably buying a lot of stuff. You're buying a lot of stuff from vendors, right? All your technology and your stuff. He says, yes. So then this is the only thing you can do. You've got to storm into his office first thing in the morning and start screaming and yelling about those damn vendors. They effed everything up, and you're tired of this, and you want to raise. <laughs> I said, that's the only way you're going to keep your job. This is the SID technique. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess that's where I learned it from. And I mean, I have. I was half joking, but I was serious. Because I knew that, that that's the only thing, the reason I would keep a guy on if, if they, well, sure enough, he did that. And then uh, I forgot about it. And then like a month later, I thought, I said, whatever happened? He goes, I did it. I went in and did it. And I said, and did you ask for a raise? And he goes, yeah. I go, well, what did you ask for? He was making 45 grand at the time. He said, I asked for $110,000. I said, what? <laughs> you asked for $110,000? He goes, he goes, yeah. I go, how? He goes, well, I added up all my overtime and I doubled it. And, and that's what it came to. I said, oh, my God. And I said, he didn't fire you. No, he didn't fire me. I go, well, let me tell you what, what's going on right now. Yeah, this might have been a week or two. He goes, he's looking to replace you right now. Because, you know, he's a smart guy, and you're asking for way more than he thinks you're worth. So one of two things is going to happen. He will, you will be replaced soon if he can find somebody for 60 or 70 that's as good as you. Or if, he, if, he, if you don't get replaced in the next month or six weeks, you will get that raise and not be as much. And sure enough, like three months later, they flew him to Las Vegas on a private plane, gave him like 90, and... Uh, the free night in Los well, what happened to the movie? Did he? Oh, it, it went up. I mean, it got back up. It, mm -hmm. The problem wasn't that the movie was permanent deleted. It's just that by the next morning's meeting, when they came in, they had to tell their their clients, "I'm sorry, the movie is down right now. We ah. need another twelve hours to." Uh, but it's more dramatic when you say delete. Yeah, yeah. And that's how he told it to me. I was like, "The whole movie's gone," you know. So um, anyway, uh, that's the end of the negotiation. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 